Let's pretend that this isn't advice. And I'm Erin, and I'm not giving you advice. It's it's not advice. I can't help myself <laughs> give advice. I don't mean to. I don't want to. I want you to be able to live your life, but I know how to do it. I'm a huge know-it-all, and this is where I practice not giving advice to people. Except I totally give advice to them. I'm a lawyer turned professional certified coach, and I just happen to give the best advice. But this is a podcast, not a coaching session, so I obviously don't do that here, except I do. This is not advice with Erin Conlon, your know-it-all lawyer coach friend. This is not advice. On today's episode of This Is Not Advice, I had Anne-Marie Romer. Anne-Marie is an author, a grandmother, a former nurse, a writer for the Dayton Daily News. Uh, She, (laughs) first of all, is just like a lovely freaking human, has so many kind things to say, has like the most graceful presence of anyone I've talked to in a while. Um, But most importantly, I took so much from this conversation. I took away the possibility of being the beacon of light. I took away what it means to be uh, the rock for your sister in a trying, trying time. Um, I got a lot out of what Anne-Marie said about um, publishing a book and how hard it can be and what it means to stick with your artistic vision. Um, Beyond that, (laughs) those things, Anne-Marie and I talk about creativity, rewarding yourself, uh, celebrating yourself, having somebody believe in you, and so, 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 so much more. Uh, Don't forget to support Anne-Marie. You can buy her book, Just Give Me the Road, at the link in the show notes, and follow her on Instagram, and watch her TED Talk. And, you know, I have a couple more spots open for my practice starting in 2022. So if you are interested in that, reach out to book a discovery call at my website, erinconlin.com. Take good care of yourselves, and I hope that you are enjoying this holiday season. Hi there, Anne-Marie. How are you? Erin, how nice to be with you on this chilly, oh-so-chilly Monday morning. (laughs) <laughs> I know. Well, this will come out on a Thursday, but yeah, it'll, um, we've officially turned. Well, we've turned the corner and I'm having a hard time. But as a friend told me yesterday, you need to lean into it, lean into the cold, lean into the growing darkness. So that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> it sounds like you're preparing to become a vampire. <laughs> I'm not a winter person. That's that's what it's about. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you, Anne-Marie. So that my audience knows who you are, can can you give a little bio and introduction of yourself? Sure. Um, Well, I am a um, retired nurse. Um, I've been married for a long time to the same person. Uh, More importantly, we have six grandchildren and more on the way. Um, But I kind of came into writing maybe about 10 years ago. So I kind of um, 
love this latest chapter in my life as a writer. I, uh, right before the pandemic hit, I published my first book called Just Give Me the Road. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But, um, yeah. and I also write for the Dayton Daily News. I'm a columnist. Um, and I like to write about, oh, I just like to write about things that kind of connect us all. So, you know, common experiences, common struggles, common joys, that sort of thing. So. Wow. Okay. First of all, congratulations on the grandbabies and the grandbabies on the way. Yes. Thank you. Most delightful part of my life at the moment for sure. Really? Oh, yeah. What do you love most about being a grandma? Um, I think when you're a grandparent, it's just this straight shooting avenue of love. I mean, that's it. Like, you don't have to worry about if they eat their broccoli. You don't have to worry about if they're flossing their teeth. You don't have to worry about anything about school. You don't have to worry about anything. All you do is love them. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's sitting on the floor with them, and then they love you back so easy. It's the easiest, most purest form of love that is just delightful. Uh, this is just uh, like why can't people parent that way? Um, I think being a parent is stressful, mm-hmm. you know, um, especially with your first one, or you know, if there's problems, if there's I don't know behavioral problems, emotional problems. You you want them. You have a certain expectation. I think that's what it is. It's expectation. Parents have expectations of their kids. And so, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to navigate all that. And uh, but as a grandparent, you don't need to have any expectations, none. You know, my goal is that my grandchildren will have me in their weddings someday. Like, can you imagine if you loved your grandmother so much, you'd say to her, you know, I want you to stand with me on my wedding day. Wouldn't that be so fun? I actually knew that would be a lot of fun. I actually knew somebody who did that. So anyway, my goal is to be their best friend and have them be my best friends. That's that. That also means that you have to stay healthy and like take care of yourself too. Oh, oh, you betcha, for sure. Like my goal is to always be on the floor with them because my my grandchildren are still rather small. So I want to be on the floor with them. I want to be able to run around outside with them and play kickball and tag. And, you know, so it does call you to take care of yourself. Mm. Um, I mean, this is, you know, we're always up to talking about a lot of things. And I'm very curious for you how being a grandparent and writing tie together. Um, I write a significant amount about my grandchildren, um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I do it, I, I think the vantage point of being a grandparent is that you're kind of, you're kind of once removed, so you can really be present to 
what they're doing, you know, moments of time that actually transcend you by this sweet love that they have. Uh, and you can just be present in that. And, and I, you know, I, I, I have the ability to mark that kind of in my brain and in my heart. So it's very easy to write about moments in time with my grandchild uh, or grandchildren that sort of, it just this kind of delight rises. And, and the response I get from other grandparents is just like, oh, I, I know just what you mean kind of thing. It's, it's really, it's pretty great. Yeah. Well, back to like the overarching, I kind of want to get a bigger picture of you because <laughs> I get the picture of you on the floor playing with your grandkids. Mm-hmm. But you also published a book 18 months ago or not that long ago. I did. So the book, um, well, wait, wait, what is the book called? The book is called Just Give Me the Road. Just Give Me the Road. It is nonfiction. Mm-hmm. It is uh, kind of, it's kind of a love letter to my sister. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about sisters. We could talk about sisters for a long time. But I have one sister, um, and she and I come from, you know, a rather large family. We had three older brothers, and then my sister and I were the younger two. Um, my family, uh, you know, we've kind of navigated um, pretty significant loss. Um, I have two brothers that took their own lives. Um, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, yes, that's very painful, but I write about that a lot too. I don't just write about on the floor with my grandkids. I write about loss to suicide. I've become kind of a local advocate in my community for suicide awareness things. But anyway, so um, my sister and I have kind of navigated life together, working through the loss of our brothers. We took care of our mom who was, you know, um, ill for quite some time. And just when we thought that life was kind of turning the corner and we were trying to move on from this heartache, um, especially after my second brother died in 2012, in March of 2013, my, si- my sister's middle child, her oldest son, was hit by a car in Chicago crossing a street randomly um, and suffered a really really severe traumatic brain injury. So my sister was thrust into this place of just unimaginable uh, struggle and challenge. And because we are so close, um, I was able to just literally be by her side uh, for many months while she was in Chicago with my nephew and the hospital and rehab and and I just kind of chronicled her ability to rise up in the midst of unimaginable hardship and I wrote about it and um actually we started a Facebook page because um Connor my nephew is very well connected in his community and he was a student at Loyola at the time And so I would write about 
what I observed with my sister and her husband, who's fabulous. Um, and I would write about how they were, they had this uncanny ability to find good despite awfulness. Um, so that sort of writing became infectious. Other people really started paying attention to that. Um, you know, Facebook is interactive, so we kind of developed this conversation with thousands of people who were following Connor's journey, but also shared their journeys of how they found themselves in this uninvited circumstance. So out of that process came the book. So the book kind of weaves Connor's story, my sister's ability to navigate her son's recovery, but we weave into that our backstory of sisters. And so... And how, how we could do that because, you know, we've just navigated some difficult times together. So can I tell you, it's a hopeful book. <laughs> it doesn't sound very hopeful, but it's really an extraordinary um, story of love. The power of love, you know, the power of mother's love, power of a sister's love, um, and just the power of where you find good when life's really really, really shitty. I don't know what's not hopeful about that. (laughs) Well, um, my whole thing and what I write about all the time is how you have to be open to the ability to recognize the ability for good to rise, even though things are really bad. And that doesn't, Mm -hmm. it's not Pollyanna-ish. I don't mean to ever suggest that good will outweigh the sorrow or the loss or the tragedy or the struggle, but that's the only way you can kind of piece together one moment to the next when you're in the midst of such challenge is to find the good that's in that moment that can propel you to the next. Does that make sense? It does. Have you ever seen the movie Inside Out? Oh, my gosh, yes. Okay, I refer to this movie all of the it's time. It's a great movie. <laughs> it's a great movie. Yeah. But it's kind of like the marbles, right? Like no memory, no experience is all yellow or all blue. Mm-hmm. All experiences have multiple colors to them. Right. Like, I don't know if you remember each each memory or each um, – in Inside Out, the their memories are served or saved as these colored marbles, and the the colors are associated with emotions. Yellow is joy, blue is sadness, green is disgust, red is anger. Um, and what you find out throughout the movie is that like one is not the other, and as we grow older, like from you know childhood to middle childhood we start to see the complexity of our emotions that without the sadness, we don't get the comfort of the joy of our parents Mm -hmm. comforting us or without the joy of winning the game, we don't get the disappointment of losing the next time. For sure. For sure. And I don't think that you can really sink into joy, the blood, the, kind of the the blessing of joy unless you have been in the deep well of sorrow you know or mm-hmm. 
the deep well of sorrow is can be more painful because you know the exhilaration of joy. It, it's almost you can't you can't disassociate them, you know. And I think you're right. The older yeah. you get, the more you realize they can all coexist at the same time, in mm-hmm. any moment. Um, you know, and uh, for me, I just think it's a choice when you're in the midst of really difficult sadness or sorrow or pain to remember that joy is available despite. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's really like, I think it's really valuable that you were there to be the person to record some of that. Did you know you were doing it at the time? I did. And I'll tell you why I did. Because I knew my sister needed to be reminded of, excuse me, the joy or the goodness that was present. But if I, but imagine sitting next to your sister. Do you have any sisters, Erin? I have two. They're both younger than me. Yeah. So imagine sitting by your sister or someone you love as they're watching, you know, I mean, for me, my sister, you know, watching her son on life support and and all this stuff. I mean, if I had turned to my sister and said, let's talk about the good that's happening right now. I mean, she would have like thrown a shoe at me, you know? I I can tell you what (laughs) both of my sisters would do. I know. And so I had- I'd have zero life. (laughs) I know. know. My sister might've kicked me out of, you know, her life forever, but I could kind of- be a little bit I could I could approach her circuitously in writing um for other people oftentimes I was writing for her does that make sense and so I knew exactly what I was doing um and I knew that my job was to be absolutely stalwart and unyielding in hope. I just had to do it because I think she was depending on me for that, kind of that stability. Um, And I was just kind of reminding her of the goodness that was happening surrounding Connor's recovery. I was just the voice of what I observed. So... I didn't know what I was doing. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, so many times when things like this happen, when when our lives are affected by tragedy, when we are the victims of real, actual things, there's an opportunity to choose, like, how do you want to be about being victimized? Right. And what I'm hearing you say is you as, um, oh, well, let me back up just a little bit there. The second part of this is that, you know, when I heard grief explained once as like a, a, a target, there's the people in the very center and then there's the people in the next circle out. And then there's the people in the next circle out 
and the people in the next circle out and it keeps going bigger and bigger. And when it comes to grief, you never go grief in. You only go Mm. grief out. Mm -hmm. Like as a way to be supportive to those in. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm hearing you say is that as somebody in like the outer ring of the closest circle. Yes. You said, okay, I'm going to be the person who reminds people that there's a choice of how they can be about this. Yes. Um, but I say that humbly because, you know, because um, and I think you can vacillate in and out of uh, feeling, feeling like a victim and then working at not feeling that way. Yeah, well, and like how you feel in any given moment, valid, fair, fine, how you choose to act is the actual option. Right, or or, or paying attention. Mm -hmm. You know, I think a lot of it is just paying attention. So, you know, when the woman comes in the hospital room with a mop, the housekeeper, you know, and she's kind of humming a, a song under her breath as she's working, you know, you listen to her voice, you know, Mm -hmm. and that can kind of help you rise for a minute, you know, and then, okay. And then you're back in your place of despair. And then you go for a walk outside. And, and, and I talk about so many of these things in the book, so many of these moments for my sister, you know, at the, I don't know what you live in Chicago, don't you, Erin? I do. Yeah, so there's this Chicago Museum of Modern Art that's mm-hmm. down near Northwestern. Yep, it's uh, like two blocks away from the hospital. Okay. And so that was my sister's route every morning to and from what used to be called the RIC. Now it's called the Shirley, the Shirley Ryan Lab. Anyway, there was a sign, um, a revolving sign, which was the name of the um, art exhibit. And it was called Mother, revolving sign Mother. So my sister would walk by that sign every morning on her way into the hospital. And, you know, our mom was pretty extraordinary and she really taught us a lot about love and hope. And so she just took that as a sign there. Okay, Mother. So she she armed herself with with the spirit of my mom every day walking in the hospital. So you just have to pay attention, you know, and um, you're... Your sagging soul can be uplifted by even the most minute things as long as you pay attention. Are you spiritual? Yes. Are you religious spiritual or just spiritual spiritual? I think I'm just spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, I was raised Catholic. Um, it's interesting in this book we talk I talk about a lot of spirituality in the book but and I use the word grace a lot but it's always with a lowercase g mm. because I never want to be uh, presumptuous presumptuous yeah you're and, not like I'm taking this from God <laughs> no and 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 I think if you you know if you my my intention was never to alienate anyone that doesn't necessarily go with the uppercase g grace you know 
Um, Because the lowercase g grace, if this makes sense, is accessible to everyone. And everyone is deserving of that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know. Um, So, yeah, I would say I'm I'm very spiritual. I'm I'm always looking, you know. um, I'm always connecting things and observations and and I do believe in the um the hopeful power of um you know a a god presence but yeah well i what i'm really present to is just how much of how you talk has that underlying theme of not just that like not just that you are you know here to share something for your sister but for other people as a reminder that you're not alone exactly that's why i wrote the book mm-hmm. um connor my nephew and i actually did a ted talk um, you did we did You'll have to send me the link and I'll put it in the show notes so that people can go watch it. Yeah. I mean, it's great. And you you see my nephew who's um, come so far in his recovery, but that was, that's our message in the Ted talk. It's like, Mm. um, if you can't take your own experience and broaden it out to this place of common humanity, then you know, that, that gives it purpose. That that's the purpose, paying it forward sort of, you know? Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the process of getting this book published, because if I know anything about writing, it's like, yeah, you can sit down and write a book, but like getting people to read it or getting people to say yes to it can be, um, a process. <laughs> well, put it that way. Mm-hmm. and there's a few choice words in that process. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to tell you because this is what I tell other people who have a dream of writing a book. So mm-hmm. I, I probably was guilty of being a little bit um, presumptuous in thinking that this book that I put together uh, would be easily sold or easily picked up by a publishing company. You know, I had a lot of people that were following my writing on Facebook, a lot of people. So I I had a following. So once I finished the transcript of the book and I had many people read it over and um, had a lot of positive feedback, I went to a pitch conference in New York City. You had to apply. I had to write about it, you know. So I was chosen to go which I also felt just a little good about that. You know, I mean, somebody was interested. And I went and you were meeting with these editors of the big houses, the big publishing houses. So Simon & Schuster, Random House, whatever. And uh, it was a four-day conference. And um, it was the most uh, knock-you-off-your- chair experience I think I've ever had. It was awful. Awful. Because I'm so sorry. Well, you you write a story 
and and it's almost like you feel like you're walking in naked into this room. It's a very mm-hmm. y- you just put yourself in a very vulnerable place. And I had one editor after another, and I have to say these were these were young women who were young enough to be my daughter. Like at the time I had a daughter in her late 20s, this was the age of, you know, these editors and one after another they would just in a matter of 90 seconds, say to me, no, I, I just don't think there's any market for this. And um, I just don't think anybody's going to be inter- interested in reading this. And the, 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 the killer was, someone even said to me, have you ever thought about writing this book as a fictional story and maybe changing your sister's character to maybe... Uh, a man, you know, the protagonist is a male. And and I'm like, I mean, it was to like make it a romance now? I don't even know because my ears turned off at that point. <laughs> my ears just shut down. And it was the most exhausting, um, demoralizing experience. I think one of the most I've ever had in my life. And I came home from that conference and I literally took my manuscript and I put it in a drawer and I didn't even look at it. I didn't pull it out. I just shut the door on the whole thing for probably a good four or five months. And then I was sitting with a dear friend. Um, Oh wait, where did you go? Did I lose you? I'm right here. Can you see me? Can you see me? Anyway. Um, anyway, I can't see you anymore, but I can hear you. Um, so I, I put the whole thing away. Um, and it was only after I sat with a dear friend who just in, in a very tender and, um, loving way, just encouraged me, you know, Mm. and she said, you know, this is a good story to tell. And so then I kind of got a little bit re-energized. And then I took matters into my own hands. And I thought, I am not going to sell my soul of my words to these people that have no idea. And they just, they don't know me. They don't know the story. So I had to be true to the story. So I kind of went through a hybrid publishing process. So I found a a publisher who helped me, um, you know, helped me Anyway, so we were able to get it out right before the pandemic, actually. So by hybrid publishing process, I think what you're talking about, and this is just for, I have a lot of creative people who listen to this. Mm-hmm. Um, and cre- creative people like to know how to do things themselves. So I'm just offering this as a little bit. But this is like partial self-publishing, partial actually having an editor and a little bit of a network to publish it? Yes. the My publisher... Um, takes he takes care of all the logistics of getting the book from manuscript to Amazon to Barnes and Noble to mm-hmm. you know um, bound and all that kind of stuff. I okay. have full control over the content of the book um, of the words, and um, so I I did not sell that to anybody else. Gotcha. You know. 
So it's like selling your distribution rights, but not the intellectual property rights. Exactly. Exactly. And there is a cost involved in that, as opposed yeah. to like one of the a publishing house coming to me and saying, we're going to buy the rights to your book. Um, you know, there's a cost to have this publisher do everything for you. But, you know, I, w- I was glad I was able to do that, number one. And number two, the book is still mine. The words are mine, you know? Yeah. So. How was it to, like, achieve this goal? Um, just fabulous. I Because th- you have to overcome the voices in your head that tell you you can't do it. And I think yeah. anyone creative and anyone who has a vision, a creative vision, has to talk to those voices on a daily basis. Like, talk about inside out, you know. I mean, imagine, totally. imagine the voices in your head that are like, oh, you, you know, this is, you know, you, you, you can't write. This is stupid. Nobody's going to read this book, you know. And you just have to plow ahead. You just have to do it, you know. And um, mm-hmm. I think... I'm very proud that I finished it, you know, and I think I've had a lot of great feedback from people who find it really inspirational. And that makes me happy because, I mean, that's kind of why I wrote it, you know, just to connect us all. Yeah. Um, How did you reward yourself? Well, um, Hmm, that's an interesting question. I think I rewarded myself with confidence. That is not a reward. <laughs> okay, that's not a reward. Um, uh, well, I That is a byproduct of achieving a goal. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, my um the gal who helps me with my um promotion in social media, um she and I, well actually she really did it. She's great. But um she planned a book launch party. So we had a party. That was fun. Is that is that a good answer, Erin? Nope. No? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I know Beth. Beth does my social media too. That is also a business decision. <laughs> so uh, this, is kind I don't of know. A, this is kind of a trick question, Anne-Marie, because this is something I actually work with with my clients, which is when you achieve a goal, any goal, a milestone, a major project, um, Oftentimes, and this is more true with women than it is for men, but oftentimes we put the brass ring of the achievement as the reward and it doesn't give us like the, the celebration of what we've done. It's like the end line has to be the thing. And giving ourselves like, yay, hey, look how amazing we are. We just don't reward ourselves. We don't give ourselves a cookie. If that were your grandkid who ran around the block for the first time, you would give them a reward. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know what that would be. Probably, given how, like, this is a big achievement. And so if we were doing, like, you know, basic project design, this would probably be a big reward, like a vacation. Oh. hmm Interesting. Yeah. 
but something to really mark the occasion of the accomplishment. Well, I'll tell you, um, I don't think that I'm at the point yet where I feel like I can mark the occasion because I can see you. You can see me. I see your look. You're going to give me a hard time. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I'm still in the active promotional phase. And you published a book. I did. I did. Yeah. You published a book and like you're still working on the audio book. Cool, 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 cool. But you published a book. That's amazing. Congratulations, Anne-Marie. Thank you, Erin. You've given me some food for thought. I'll think about it. I, I mean, consider that you, you know, you had another career. You had a whole career as a nurse. Mm-hmm. And my guess is you didn't celebrate that that much either, did you? No. I loved it, but no. Yeah, it's just a place to look. Like, how can you celebrate yourself? Hmm. Yes. I might be a little bit on this kick, too, because it was my birthday this weekend. So, <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, you know, right after this book came out, um, you know, so the book came out in February of 20, uh, 2019. Mm-hmm. I'm all messed up now. Or 2020. 2020. Mm-hmm. And I turned the next month on March, I turned 60. You did? I you did. don't look a day over 55. Oh, well, let me tell you, you talk about rewarding yourself. I really don't have any issues with that because I was throwing myself a huge party. Nice. A, a big party. The whole sh- shebang. My kids were all nice. in it and we were going to do it up big. Well, you know, then the world shuts down. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, that party is still coming. It's still coming sometime. <laughs> but anyway, so I'm okay with rewarding myself. I was ready to embrace 60 in my book. and it, But it's interesting, like, what, you, what people will reward themselves for. Like, socially acceptable things, birthdays, yes. Achievements or, like, getting, hitting a goal or whatever. Let's sneak by, pretend it's okay, and like say, but it's not there yet. So I don't need to reward myself. Mm-hmm. It's just a place to look. That's it's a good place to look. No, I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I do. I think, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, before we like get on that tangent, are you writing a new book or are you just working on the audiobook? What are you currently working on? Um, I am not writing another book at the moment. Um, mm-hmm. I actually have another I actually have another fictional book that I was working on way before I started Just Give Me the Road and that really? is that's catching dust in the bottom drawer of my file cabinet and I okay. I tell myself I want to pull it out and look at it but it is probably Oh you're going to yell at me again about this too I'm not going to yell at you yeah. <laughs> Anyway it's it's probably the worst written thing ever But Okay I, I will pull that out someday. It kind of, you know. Uh, but anyway, I love writing for the paper. I write for the Dayton Daily News. Mm-hmm. So I love doing that. Um, you know, they they run my articles every week, which is fun. So um, what do you like? I hear that you love writing. 
do you like writing fiction or nonfiction more? Is there a thing that you have a a lean towards? Um, writing nonfiction, I think, is easier than writing fiction because you just write about what you experience or what you observe. That's easy to put words to, I think. Writing fiction and creating a story and character development, I think, is probably much more difficult. Um, and it calls you to really be committed to your characters that you've created, you know, and I'm not sure if I have the stamina for that, to be honest. I don't know, but, Mm. but I do love writing. So, um, you know, and I'm working on this audio book once I get that done and, uh, you know, then I can kind of revisit that. Well, you're doing a lot. Let's just own, you know, six grandbabies, an audio book, a, day, a weekly column. With, you know, that's a lot. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, but it's a lot of good creative stuff. It's a lot of stuff that fills yeah. my soul, you know. I'm just saying you don't need to add more. Just because you have a fiction book in the file cabinet of the recesses of your mind, it doesn't mean you have to pull it out and finish it just that's because true. you started it. That's true. If I pulled out all of the projects that I have started, I would have a... (laughs) Well, my protagonist in this probably awfully written fictional, not even a manuscript yet, her name is Roxy. Isn't that great? Mm. Isn't that a great name? So I think about her sometimes. She's a little bit of a sassy gal, so... What do you love about her? Oh, she's young and she's, um, she's very... Uh, driven. She's very sassy, but she's mm-hmm. got a big hole. She's got a big unhealed hole in her heart. And so she tries to cover that up. But anyway, I love the fact that the people around her are kind of helping her to unpeel it, it you know. So mm-hmm. it's probably like a Hallmark movie or something. I don't know. I mean, there's a market for those. There is, there is a market for those. Yeah, I, I am the market for those. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we'll see, we'll see. But I am having fun writing now. I, you know, it's kind of a, it's a new thing for me. It's a second, second or third career. It's fun. How do you relate to your life? I mean, with all of the seasons that you've had. What do you mean? Well, you said like, oh, this is a second or third career. This is fun. Like, how do you, do you relate to your life as like a grand adventure? Do you relate to your life as uh, an, an unfolding epic story? Is there a way in particular that you relate to your life? Um, I think it's kind of. I'm just out for a good hike. I'm out mm. for a a really beautiful hike. Can you share more about like what the hike means to you? Well, it's a little bit of a, you know, when you go walking or hiking, it's not a fast pace. So mm. it's a little bit of a slow pace. Um, it's about calling yourself to pay attention uh, Mm -hmm. to the little things on your path, Um, trying to navigate being out of breath as you're going up the hill, you know, 
kind of pacing yourself towards that and telling yourself you can do it. You know, you're strong. You can get up this hill and not collapse. Um, and sometimes enjoying that hike with other people, but sometimes really being okay, just kind of walking I like that by metaphor. myself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, one of the questions I ask people is um, some variation of, like, how do you get around your blocks? Hmm. So this doesn't have to be writer's block. It can be any obstacle. But how do you get around obstacles? If a tree fell on your hike or you there was a rock slide. Um, and I do this all the time. So um, I think being, well, I'm 61 now, but I think being 61 for me is empowering. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, I remind myself all the time when I hit those roadblocks that, you know, you know, I just remind myself that I'm a little bit of a badass. I can be a badass. I don't feel that way all the time. But if you can't say that at 61, you know, then uh, I don't know. Maybe you need to reevaluate. But that's what I tell what, myself. What does being a badass mean to you? Well, it just means that um, I can I can navigate through. I can do I can do anything. I can get up the hill. I can um, pause for a minute when the, you know, the rubble falls around you. I can pause and just uh, figure it out, you know. So, um, yeah. And that's been cultivated over a long time. I was not mm -hmm. a badass at 40, you know. I was. No? No. I don't think so. Maybe I was more of a badass at 40 than I was at 30. That's true. I think with each decade, you kind of build your badass qualities a little bit more. That's the goal, I think, especially as women. I feel like I become a little bit more of a badass, but I also get way softer the older I get. Yeah. You know, my mom um, was a very gray oriented person so nothing mm. was ever black and white in her world nothing really nothing that would be so infuriating to be well <laughs> it was you know it was kind of uh it wasn't infuriating though because when you're learning how to love from somebody like your mom and she's so accepting of anything mm -hmm. You know, you could be anybody, anything, whatever. I mean, or not. And she would just, she just loved you. Her eyes lit up every time we walked in the room, you know. So um, I think just having that softness of compassion and understanding uh, has always been with me. So my challenge has been to kind of, not become a hard, hard ass, but just kind of be able to rise up in my own voice and in my own shoes. Yeah. 
I can understand that. So one of my favorite questions is what is some advice that you have seen work for other people or other people have given you, but has just been terrible, terrible advice for you? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, This is the worst. Oh, I don't know. This is advice, but this is kind of one of those cliche things that's the worst. It's like God doesn't give you anything that you can't handle. Is that how? Oh my God, it's such bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's the worst. That's the worst. Um, Or, you know, some of those. Anyway, I think piece of advice that people have given me that doesn't really work for me. Um, um, I don't know. I have to think about that. Well, that God doesn't give you anything you can't handle, or if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger thing. Oh, my Lord. Yeah. Those are. The- I mean, I take extreme objection to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I do too. Well, I do too. Because it, it makes you... It puts you on the, in this place where it's like, where you're kind of fighting God, like God is doing this to me. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, um, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but my sister's journey, um, you know, she goes, okay, she loses, we lost her mom, then we lost our brother Neil, and then her her son's accident. And then just when she thought life was coming to terms with kind of ordinary mm-hmm. time again, her house is struck by lightning and burns to the ground. Shut the front door. I am not kidding you. And if one more person had said to her, Kathy, you must be so special in God's eyes. Seriously. Because she was given yet this other trial. (laughs) I mean... I am so mad for her. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know. She's really, you know, she and her husband both and their family, they've really been through the ringer. But if you met her, she's like the most delightful and favorite person. She's my kid's favorite person on the planet. She's great. My well, sister. And, oh, that, yeah, now I can see why for you specifically seeing how terrible that phrase or idiom or advice or whatever it is that people say would be so blatantly offensive. It is blatantly offensive. Yeah. But, Mm -hmm. um, anyway, yeah. I think it's kind of along the lines of just buck up. Yeah. Um, and you know, my, you know, but having said that, my thing, like I mentioned before, is that good, good rises anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, even on the morning of the fire, you know, she almost wanted, she almost, my sister almost threw a shoe at me again because I kept telling her like, you know, well, your house is gone, but you're here. I mean, it, you could have, you could have died in that fire. You know, <laughs> she wants to throw a shoe at me a lot, but anyway, you should just have a shoe on hand for her to I throw know. at you and yeah. just be willing. 
I can take it. A shoe and some armor, you know, some armor. You're just like, here's my shield. Here's your shoe. Yeah. 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 So what advice have you been given that you don't like or doesn't Uh, work for you? Well, go to law school was a big one. (laughs) That didn't work for me. Um, And I think the other big advice that has been given to me that just often doesn't work for me is something along the lines of like, um, well, there's many things because advice in one moment will work and advice in another moment won't. And so I think that's part of what I love about this question is that like, there's a lot of good advice and there's a lot of terrible advice and there's a lot of good, terrible advice in the moment. Mm -hmm. So, oh, but advice that doesn't come from compassion and comes from this is how you should do it is usually the terrible stuff. Right. Lean in tends to be not great advice for me. Yeah. Because it, is based in like perfectionism, do more, try more, work harder. And if I could do more work, work more, try harder then I will, but it just tends to me burning out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I wish, um, I wish someone would have given me advice and said something like, go to law school. You, you can do it. You know, I'm not saying that law school would have been right for me, but something that would have called me out of uh, my comfort zone when I was younger. I wish I would have gotten that advice. Yeah. It's not that law school was bad advice. Everyone had very high expectations for me. And I think for me... I'm really grateful I went to law school. I met some of my best friends. I got to work in an industry that has been supportive for me outside of the industry. It's great to be law adjacent, but I was never meant to be a good lawyer. Hmm. I am meant to be a much better coach and podcaster. And so, but I needed to do all of that to be here. Yeah, and don't you think that that makes you a better podcaster and coach? Because oh, 100%. Yeah. So it's not that I regret it. It's not a regret. And I kind of wonder sometimes, like, what would have been – would I have been a more creative person? Like, would I have been a real comedian? Would I have actually, like, stuck with stand-up in my 20s? If I had stayed in Chicago and not gone to law school, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, hard to say. It's hard to say. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, I was never given. I was given the opportunity to go to college, which was great, um, and that was not a given in my family. Um. But you know, I had met my I met my husband in high school. And so oh, you did? I did. So I attached myself to him and his dreams and goals. Mm-hmm. 
So I never even thought about dreams and goals for myself until I was in my 30s, you know. And until that time, you know, I just kind of went along and went along for the ride and did whatever I had to do to support him. And then we had kids and whatever. So it's kind of a, a not an unusual story for women of my generation, you know. Um, so, you know, I wish somebody would have said, hmm, you know, you, you really need to rethink how you're going to prepare yourself for life, you know, because you're capable of a lot. Not that I'm, I wasn't prepared for life. I don't mean to diminish that. I don't know, but. No, I, I understand that. I think part of like from just by way of background, my mom, her dad died when she was seven. Mm. And so there was a lot of like young independence that she had. And so when she had kids, that was a big thing that she and my dad instilled upon us. And so it sounds like you just had a very safe upbringing too. And so it wasn't necessary for you to think that you had to take care of yourself in that way. Well, I know, but my dad kind of left and, um, you know, my mom who was not college educated had to support us on a receptionist Mm -hmm. in a doctor's office salary. And, you know, my family kind of fell apart when I was a teenager. My, you know, my brother, my oldest brother had some mental health issues, which eventually led to him taking his life. And so, um, I, I, I don't, I think it was just, um, I don't know. We th- That kind of conversation just didn't, didn't happen. Exist. It did, just didn't happen. I think there was just too much survival mode for other reasons. My mom was just in survival yeah. mode for herself and her kids. And It's funny what survival mode does to people. Like it takes away people's imagination. Yes. And possibility and sense of anything. Yeah. Intrepid adventure. Right. Right. It really makes you laser focused on surviving in whatever capacity that is for you. Well, Anne-Marie, for somebody who didn't think about it until your 30s, you kind of have done a pretty good job of the past 30 years. Well, uh, I've been, I've been loved by a lot of great people. Mm -hmm. And when you're loved, you know, you can empower yourself. I know. It's kind of amazing how good shit happens. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a little bit of, with a little bit of support and a little bit of acknowledgement. That's right. And you can switch gears and go from law to podcast or coach, right? Yeah. Well, outside of love and support, what kind of help do you need? Now? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I know um, my book can go big. Okay. So, you know, our dear Beth is helping me with that. So we buy Beth's, buy, buy Anne-Marie's book. That's right. Buy my book. Just give me the road. Um, 
I, it's interesting. I don't know if I think about the realm of need. Um, I don't know. You're kind of asking me some questions I just don't have an answer to, Erin. <laughs> it's almost like I do this for a living, Anne I guess so. <laughs> Man, I think you could really, like, make me quite uncomfortable. I mean, these are the, the easy questions. <laughs> How can we help you? <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Well, how about this? We definitely will put the link to your TED Talk in there. We can watch that mm-hmm. and buy your book. Yes. And follow you on Instagram. Yes. That's great. That's a good answer. Okay. Yes, you can follow <laughs> me on Instagram. Romer and awesome. Marie. Yep. Um, the last question is my favorite. What does success look like for you in this area? In the area of writing or life? All of it. Um, and this is not to say you're not successful. I just like this question. Yeah. I um, I actually f- have that feeling of success quite often. Mm-hmm. When I am surrounded by my adult children – um and their children i feel profoundly successful not because i take ownership of their goodness as people but because it feels successful to be in their presence i really love my adult kids and their people. Um, and as far as success of my writing goes, um, I feel success every time I open the paper and see my picture with my article. That makes me feel successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, being with you today makes me feel successful. Um, and I feel successful when I kind of am in a good place with life-giving people and that where I don't have to pretend at all about anything. I love that. Yeah. Sounds like a pretty good, um, well, what I hear is that you feel successful when you get to be present. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, there's always things we have to do where it's kind of a drudge and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so feeling successful in a, with wonderful people and in a loving place is really a nice gift. Yeah. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie, for doing this show today. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. Well, I appreciate you asking me, and um, it's been lovely to spend this time with you, Erin. Same, same, same. (laughs) All right. Thank Uh, you. Thanks so much. 
This Is Not Advice is brought to you by me, Erin Conlin. If you are interested in learning more about my coaching practice or how we might be able to work together, please visit erinconlin.com. This podcast would not have happened without production support from Cedar Cathedral Narrative Studio.